God is dead. That was a phrase made famous in the 19th century by a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. It was Nietzsche who coined this phrase, God is dead. He made it famous in a book that he wrote titled, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Nietzsche used this phrase, God is dead, figuratively, parabolically, metaphorically, euphemistically. Zechariah 12, verse 10 is where we find ourselves this evening on Good Friday. And Zechariah doesn't use the phrase, God is dead, in a metaphorical, parabolic way. No, (laughs) Zechariah uses the phrase, God is dead, in a literal way. One of the most stunning verses in the entire Old Testament is before us tonight. Zechariah quotes God, who is the speaker here. They will gaze upon me, whom they have pierced. The Hebrew language has two words that are often translated see or watch or look or gaze. Uh, The first word is ra'ah, and ra'ah simply means to glimpse, glance. Uh, Take a quick look, ra'ah. We, we do this all the time, every day. The more intense word, though, isn't ra'ah, it's nabat. Nabat in Hebrew, and of course you can see up here on the screen, that's the phrase we have in our text. Not ra'ah, a glimpse or glance, but nabat, gaze, stare, glare, watch, be mesmerized, be transfixed, be beholden to. Gaze. Gaze upon God. God who is dead for the sin of the world. For every sin in the world. Even our sin, our ugly sin, our haunting sin, our memorable sin, our hard-hearted sin... For every sin, this God is pierced and struck and killed. Not only sin done by us, that's guilt, God takes that away, but also sin done to us, that's shame, God takes that away. No wonder God through Zechariah invites us not to glimpse or gaze, but to be transfixed, mesmerized, beholden to this God who takes away the sin of the world. It might strike us as a bit odd in the Old Testament that God suffers and dies. But just consider a couple verses. Already in the sixth chapter of the Bible, We read that God looks upon the chaos, the evil, the misery, the sin, the rebellion of the world, and that he has literally, Genesis 6, verse 6, heart-piercing sorrow. It breaks God's heart to see what's going on in the world back then and even today. God sees his people Israel 
in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. And he comes down in the burning bush and he says, I know their pain. No, yada in Hebrew. He's intimately acquainted with and experiences pain. In the book of Isaiah, God's the only person who is modified by the words high and lifted up. There you have it, Isaiah 6, 33 and 57. God's the only person who's high and lifted up in the book of Isaiah. So it should strike us with great mystery and profound repentance that the servant, the suffering servant, is also high and lifted up. This suffering servant on the same level as God, in fact, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. As the servant is high and lifted up, just like God, the servant who is God is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That God suffers and dies in the Old Testament. means that he suffers and dies for the sin of the world. And we're invited to not just glimpse or take a glance, but finally to gaze, nabat, to be transfixed on Good Friday on this God who dies for the sin of the world. Zechariah tells us in our text who this God is. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Again, stunning claims, prophetic claims. 600 years before Good Friday, Zechariah has the Holy Spirit who tells us that this is an only son, a firstborn son. And of course, as believers, we know exactly who that is. Jesus. Jesus is the only son. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is God, and God is dead. The implications are stunning. Christ as God planted the tree from which his cross is carved. Christ as God forged the minerals from which his nails were forged. Christ as God created a woman who had a son whom she named Judas Iscariot. Christ as God, as almighty God, as sovereign God, as the only God, Christ as God set in motion all the political events that sent Pontius Pilate to Judea, Herod to Jerusalem, and Caiaphas to be the high priest that year. The implications are absolutely stunning. The Christ as God orchestrated, set up, and planned his own arrest, his own execution, his own death. No wonder God invites us to gaze. Gaze, be transfixed. Stare at, glare at. Be mesmerized with the one who hangs dead on the cross. 
gaze upon his hands and feet stuck there by nails, a gaze upon that hole in his side created by that Roman spear thrust, gaze upon his cheeks caked with blood and sweat, his mouth poisoned by gall, and his face pale in death. In less than 400 minutes, Jesus experienced an eternity of hell. So, Pastor Lessing, you're saying, really you're saying, let me see if I can connect the dots. You're saying that God, a puffy-eyed, split-lipped, blood-caked God, died on a cross. That God had his garments gambled away. That God had dice thrown at his feet, that God took the nails, that God took the spears. Yes, that's exactly it. That's the stunning claim of Good Friday, that God is dead. Dead, God, for the sin of the world. There are other options, though, you know, I know, When it comes to our sin, uh, we can leave our sin at the foot of the cross and leave it with God. Or we can be defensive. We've all been defensive over sin, haven't we? When you're defensive over sin, the goal is not to admit sin... The goal is not to address sin. When you're defensive over sin, the goal is innocence, not forgiveness. The goal is to put all the skeletons into a closet. The one consuming passionate goal in life is never admit sin, address sin, and whatever you do, whatever you do, we know this, we know this, don't we? Whatever you do, don't confess sin. If you're defensive over sin, you are very difficult to live with. (laughs) And you are carrying a burden you're not meant to bear. We can be defensive over sin. We can be defeated over sin. If defensive people say, I'm innocent then (laughs) defeated people walk around feeling completely guilty all the time. Defeated people look at their sin and they say, I didn't commit a certain amount of failures. I am a failure. Defeated people don't say, I messed up. Defeated people say, I am a mess up. Defeated people, I know, you know, I know quite well. Defeated people walk around with great blame and shame. So instead of leaving sin at the foot of the cross of God, we have this twisted propensity to become defensive or defeated. Some people become depressed. I know that. So do you. If defensive people 
deny their sin, and defeated people, they keep replaying their sin. Then depressed people, they gasp over sin. They're struck by the horror of who they are and what they've thought and what they've done. They gasp, but they don't gaze. They don't gaze. One example would be Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, chapter 8, verse 8. Pharaoh is gasping over his sin. He's horrified by what's going on. He, He says to Moses, plead for the Lord to take away the frogs. He gasps, but he doesn't gaze upon God and God's provision of a sacrifice for sin. A New Testament example would be Judas Iscariot. A Judas Iscariot, he gasps over sin. He's horrified by what has happened. Matthew 27, verses 4 and 5. Judas gasps, but he never gazes. He never looks intently at God dead on the cross. Pharaoh isn't forgiven. Judas Iscariot isn't forgiven. They're depressed. They gasp, but they don't gaze. All of us get stuck in any number of these ways of dealing with the mess and the baggage and the junk and the rebellion and the darkness of our lives. Is there a better way? Oh, thank God there's a better way. There's a much better way, and it's a way that God provides. Still, in Zechariah 12, verse 10, God says, I will pour out on them the spirit of grace. Who's the them? The them would be the perpetrators of God's death. The them would be those who pierced him with the spear. The them would include me. Them would include you and and God in his grace. There is the Holy Spirit of grace. He pours that spirit out upon us so we don't have to live in defensiveness and defeat and depression. (laughs) What a God. What a Savior. And let me show you what the spirit of grace does to our hearts. It breaks our hearts. So we gasp, (laughs) but we just don't gasp. We also gaze, gaze upon God dead on the cross. This is how the rest of Zechariah 12 proceeds. On that day, the, the day of God's death, the day when God pours out a spirit of grace to bring repentance to people's hearts, The lamenting in Jerusalem will be as great as the lamenting in Hadad Rimmon and the plain of Megiddo. Well, what's all that about? (laughs) That's a big deal in 609 B.C. That's when the great godly pious king Josiah died fighting Pharaoh Necho on the plains of Megiddo. And people lamented greatly. The land shall lament. Now, Zachariah could just stop there. But you see, lamenting is personal. 
It's not just see the land. He just doesn't say, well, everybody does. No, each family by itself. Family of the house of David by itself. The wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. The wives by themselves. Why does Zechariah break all this down? Because lamenting and repenting and looking to God dead on the cross is finally personal. It's you, it's me, it's David, it's Nathan. It's the family of the house of Levi and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Wow. The Holy Spirit of grace is poured out so that we gasp, but we also gaze, we're transfixed, we're glued to. That's what faith is. Faith isn't trying harder. Faith isn't feeling bad that you're just found out. No, faith, faith is looking to this God. This God pierced with the spear to take away the sin of the world. It means that we don't have to drink our sin away, eat our sin away, exercise our sin away, work our sin away, explain our sin away, or bury our sin away. Amazing. It might be strange for most of us because we're so used to carrying all our sin, all our past, all our regrets, all our hurt, all our pain. We're just so used to that. It's almost impossible to imagine not carrying all that baggage. But God doesn't just imagine this. God does it. God takes it all away. He gives us the pierced one on the cross for the sin of the world. You probably know the corona is the Latin word for crown. Corona, the coronavirus, comes from the Latin word for crown. Uh, That's because spiked rings of proteins form on the surface crown-like images. Hence, corona, crown, virus. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a pretty good hunch that you've been gazing a lot at the crown virus. That that there are times in each day that you feel absolutely overwhelmed with this crown virus, this coronavirus. You don't know how you're going to survive emotionally, relationally, financially, spiritually. As your pastor, who loves you and who misses you deeply, 
and who cares for you and wants just the very best for you. As your pastor, let me speak straight from my heart. If you keep gazing at this crown, at this corona, at this pandemic, if you are transfixed and mesmerized by this crown, you will become absolutely overwhelmed, completely undone, stuck in the pit of despair. On Good Friday, there is another crown. A crown that announces God's peace, God's pardon, God's power, God's absolution, God's unending love. On Good Friday, there's another crown that God wore the day he died in blood on the cross for the sin of the world. Nabat. <laughs> Gaze. Don't glance. Don't just glimpse. Gaze. Be transformed. Be transfixed. Be mesmerized by this crown that God wore on a Good Friday. Gaze upon this crown and this God who did it all. All. Just for you. <laughs> 